What if you actually are motivated, but it's just not enough to get you where you need to be in your personal and professional life? Have you considered how small, easy changes, like really small changes, how the little things could help you and your team overcome stagnation? Well, today I sit down with an incredibly inspiring associate of mine, Oren Cohen, the founder and CEO of G-Work, and together we explore how little design features in a personal culture and a workplace culture can lead to successful habits. We explore how to apply behavioral science and neuroscience in the simplest way possible, and perhaps most importantly, we also share with you why we have partnered to ensure your behavioral changes are sustainable, easy to implement, and measurable. I'm your behavioral psychology author, Timothy Maurice, and I want to thank you for listening from all over the world, from Europe to Canada to the Middle East to Asia to Africa, East, West, Southern Africa, and of course the Americas and wherever else you're listening. I appreciate you choosing this episode, and please do share it with someone you care about. Now, I bring you Oren Cohen. Enjoy. Oren, welcome. How are you? I'm great. How are you? So fantastic to be here today. Yeah, I mean, you and I go way back, but we recently, yeah, way <laughs> back, uh, but we've recently reconnected and we've got a lot of exciting conversations on the table. And today we're going to share with you two minds hanging out at a bar, having a chat. Can we do that? Let's do it. But I do have to introduce you to our audience through our Inside the Mind feature. If I don't, I know our listeners are going to be a little bit upset. All right, you don't mind if we go inside your mind. I'm going to peel back your mind and go inside your brain. You're okay with that? Yeah, look, it's very accessible, as you can see. Okay. <laughs> So here we go. Inside the mind, I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you two options. You can only choose one. Number one is smiling or laughing. Laughing. Number two, horseback riding or surfing. Horseback riding. <laughs> ah. It's gonna get really tricky. Brace yourself. Wisdom, okay. wisdom or knowledge. Wisdom. Teaching sure. or learning. Oh, that's a tough one because <laughs> the real teachers are learners and they yes. learn as they teach. Um, but because of the categories, I'm going to go with learning. Awesome. Number five, Paris or London? Ooh, Paris. <laughs> now, you move around the world quite often. Number six is Airbnb or hotel? Airbnb. And our final question, which is by far the most challenging, is artist or designer? Ooh, it's another trick question like the <laughs> <laughs> teacher or learner. Because if, if you're a true artist, you're a designer. And if you're a true designer, you're an artist. I think that they overlap. So um, for this, I'm probably going to say artist. Artist. 
Well, Aura, thank you so much for allowing us to go inside your mind. Let's talk a little bit about motivation and why this conversation even matters to begin with. Let's go back to when you were a child. Do you remember the first time you felt really, really motivated? That's a great question. Um, one of the first things that really motivated me, I remember when I was 13, uh, somebody said to me, hey, do you want to audition for, for a theater play? And it was the first time I felt a sincere level of motivation that was almost inexplicable, I would say. Mm. Something inside me moved to want to, to um, express myself in that way. I had a sort of a quite... Uh, I was quite insular as a child, as in as a teenager. And so uh, drama and theater was the way by which I found a way to express myself. So uh, I would say that that was probably one of the first uh, Mm. uh, moments I experienced a truly intrinsic motivation. I remember growing up as well. I, my, my father was one was my baseball coach. So I played baseball, basketball, and football. I played all three sports, and I was, you know, but my they wouldn't let me play unless I got all A's in school. And, you know, that sort of link between school and sports performance was one of my early motivations. But sometimes motivation can come from this sort of unconscious, damn near trauma. Yes. And I remember I hit a home run once, and the crowd went wild, and I came around the bases. And my father said, I don't think it went over the fence. I think it bounced over. And for some reason, I was literally like 12 years old. I have been trying to clear the fence ever since. Wow. It's like trying to solve for that moment. And I've never told him this. And I'm thinking about maybe even later today calling him to see if he remembers this stuff. I doubt he remembers, right? But I'm always blown away at how much stuff motivates us without us being aware. Have you had any of those reflections recently about why you do what you do, why you want to be a father, why you want to be a father, why you want to build a career, any of that? So was the last segment opening the brain? (laughs) Is this the the segment (laughs) opening the brain? I think this is deep. This is a... This is a therapy level uh, because I think that in some ways I have always reflected on my desire to innovate. Is it because I'm afraid of the normality mm. or is it some almost God-given intrinsic daemon within me that says I don't work inside the lines? And so if a poet was to write the story of my life in one way, they could say he was a rebel that just was just scared of straight boxes. And in the same, in the same breath, if you said it through the eye of soul or perspective uh, of one's life, I think I was, I've always lived and thrived between the lines. Oh, interesting. So let's talk a little that because, uh, for example, one of the things is I didn't finish high school, uh, okay. but I did a master's in leading innovation and change. 
And it's only when I found the true outlet of creativity of where I thrive within frameworks that that um, I found myself. Well, well, this is what's so interesting about you is that <laughs> is that your lines are different. How you navigate in between these lines that you're speaking about is very different. And I find your energy, your perspectives to be fresh. And so maybe this is a good time. Let's go a little bit further back. Tell us a little bit about some of the experiences, you know, where you come from and some of the moments that kind of help shape you to think about this world of design versus motivation. Yeah. Oh, again, you're asking to go deep. So I was I was born in Israel, uh, a place that currently is uh, is, is a hard word to, to share with people because of what's happening in the world. And when I was about nine, we left Israel to move to South Africa. And in my 20s, I decided I was going to, to, to do a journey back to Israel. And I went there and I actually went to study music. Uh, oh, wow. um, oh, Because wow. another, another um, lifetime, I was a musician. And when I was there, I... I I felt called to get involved in interfaith work, in mediation work. And so oh, well, but wait, wait, before you go further, you gotta tell us what kind of musician though. You can't just <laughs> drop that on us and then move so fast. <laughs> so I was a singer-songwriter. When I say oh, I was, wow. I still am. Uh, I released okay. an album. You can find me on iTunes. We have uh, to put this link in the we have to put this <laughs> link in the show notes. Sure. The the album is called Paint a Life. So, oh wow! Okay, okay, yeah. cool. So you asked right, about so you went... artist versus design, that design. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. <laughs> cool. So, 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 so yes, yeah, so I found myself um, in Israel, and I started to work. I was inspired and invited. I I went to an event, and I heard that somebody is being invited to go to a conference to talk about how to heal religion. And I was sparked. I was gone. I was like, I don't know what's special about tomorrow, but what's special about next week is I'm coming with you. <laughs> and a whole set of synchronistic events happened where within two weeks, I was already working at the organization uh, that I went to the conference for. Um, and it was phenomenal. We would go into Israel and we would go into Palestine and we would say, if the only thing you knew about Palestinians is a suicide bomber, come to our conversation. If the only thing you knew about Israelis is that they wear uniforms and they hold AK-47s, come to our meetings. And we would bring people together. And one of our mottos was, may the otherness of the other not only be accepted, but celebrated. Mm, wow. It wow. Was, How old are you when this happened? 23, 22. Really? It's like that. <laughs> wow. Most 23-year-olds are running around just making a mess. And you're like. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. The, they, they call me or run. Walk or run. I always do the running yeah, yeah. for the walking. <laughs> um, wow. I would say it was some, it was probably one of the hardest times of my life and the hardest processes I've ever seen. And it really tore me apart to see the inherited disconnection and hate. And it was so healing to see Israeli youth and Palestinian youth 
be in the same room and hard to believe, but you couldn't tell the difference. Mm. <laughs> I love it. And I love the it. power of connection that happened there. And so what happened for me is that that sparked a whole new um, a journey in my life where I started to work in uh, in the nonprofit sector. I started to get really passionate about social systems and social and community transformation and uh, worked with the United Nations uh, in an organization called Children of the Earth, which I'm now a board member of. And our focus was about how do you create this consciousness transformation, this shift in the ways by which people see the world and then people take action within their communities. Well, well, I'm thinking about, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about, you know, being a 23-year-old in the middle of, you know, bringing Israeli and Palestinians together, especially youth, and having these consciousness transformation. When you left this work, what was the next thing you did? So I started to work with the international nonprofit. So I had to leave Israel because I decided to not do the army. Um, okay. Because I was doing interfaith work, it didn't it didn't sit right for me. And and um, the the next thing I did is I started to work with an international nonprofit called Children of the Earth. Okay. And we focused on what we called spiritual activism. Oh wow. We created a, uh, so I was the International Hubs Coordinator, and we created a model um, for spiritual activism around reflect about who I am and where is my place in the world, connect with others, and act. And our, our approach was to create environments where youth could be sparked, could be inspired into something bigger than themselves. You know, we're going to go deep here, Timothy. Yeah. <laughs> You're asking these questions that I cannot but answer. <laughs> yeah. I think we're, we're in a society that teaches us to think quite small or at least quite selfishly about ourselves um, and what we will achieve in our lives. And so the environments that we created allowed youth to understand um, the bigger picture, and how they're connected to others. So we would go into uh, underprivileged environments. We would take people to Native American lands to experience uh, spiritual processes there. We would take them to uh, to Catholic monasteries. Uh, so we traveled all over the world to and took youth on this journey of self-expression and then supported them to take action. So wow. social architecture and social transformation has been deep in my blood. Um, I see. From 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 as as small as you can think about. As you know when you as, yeah. when you think about showing someone a movie or getting someone to read a book about a culture versus them being immersed into that culture. Yeah. What would you say is the fundamental difference? Embodied experience. You can, you can talk about a mountain or an incredible experience until the cows come home. It's a cognitive experience. You know, over, over lockdown, you could feel the difference between talking to somebody on a screen versus mm. actually having somebody in the room. Yeah. And so there's this feeling that human beings have and need 
which is the ability to actually physically experience things. And I think if we understand intelligence and expand intelligence, there are many forms of intelligence. And I think that what we find is that when you're actually experiencing something and immersing yourself, as you said, you go there, you sit on the floor, you drink that weird substance, the, the, the weird tea that they've got, or you listen to the language and you see how they cook. Something changes within you. Your empathy, your perspective widens. Yeah, I, I was, <laughs> I'm, I'm blown away at, you know, we do a lot of work, both of us, and we're going to speak a bit about this in a moment with teams and there I'm grateful for technology and how, you know, I worked on a project with AstraZeneca and we had about 30 countries online. Um, and I'm, I've, I've gotten to a point where I've started to appreciate what happens at a cellular level, both online and in person. So when I, when I'm thinking about the ability to connect this kind of global audience versus work with a team. I have a talk on Friday with a you know group of youth, about 200 youth, and I'm looking forward to seeing that youthful energy in person and watching their feet where I couldn't see their feet on screen if we were on screen. Absolutely. And, you know, watching the little small things that often hit a blind spot if you are online. Yeah. Have you, have you, when you roll out your work online versus in person, what are some of the big differences for you? What are some of the beauty in both? So I think we've almost had to evolve our faculties to connect through technology. Yes. I would say that if you looked at how you spoke to somebody prior the pandemic versus how you speak to somebody online now, I feel quite connected to you. Okay, we yes. didn't give each other a hug when we when we saw each other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, smell the coffee like we did at our last yes. uh, uh, coffee meetup. But I think that we have had to evolve. There's just something that happens in in interventions, in workshops, in processes where you bring people together, where there's an emergence that takes place. That mm. is, you could say almost that the sum is greater than the parts. Yes. That wow. you cannot really achieve to the same level digitally, or at least mm. it's much harder to achieve. Yeah. Wow. When you were speaking earlier, I realized we have a lot more in common than I thought. <laughs> you know, the idea of social design and social impact I, I knew you had worked quite deeply in that space, but I didn't know to what extent. And I don't know if you know how much I've also worked in that space. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because, you know, working with youth, I mean, at some point I was working with uh, extremely vulnerable youth um, who, who's, who teenagers and preteens who had, lost their parents to HIV, both parents. Hmm. And one of our goals was to see how we could help accelerate the internal and external reality of these youth. And, and I was thinking, I'm like, as you're speaking, I'm like, we both have, 
we both have been inspired by our background to help organizations in this sort of social design. And maybe it's there where we're not comfortable with just motivation. Maybe we've seen too much. Maybe we've seen motivation not make the level of impact that we hoped for in in lives or in communities, in environments. Maybe we have longed for more than just motivation because motivation is valuable. And the reason why we have this entire conversation about motivation versus behavioral design and behavioral psychology, behavioral economics, is that I personally believe, as you were talking, I just had a realization. I'm like, maybe I got frustrated and fatigued with just motivation at some point. And maybe I was drawn to the principles of behavioral psychology and design without even realizing it. Is that possible? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I think that there's this information action fallacy that we have that we feel that if if people just knew they would take action. Yes. But the truth is that we are far more beautiful and complex than that. <laughs> yes, true, true. And because we are complex and our environments, our social systems are complex. You know, there's this beautiful saying is that your tools must be as complex as the problem that you are solutioning for. Yes. And your tools are not necessarily, you know, like a hammer. Of course, if you, what is that beautiful quote? If you treat, if you see the world if you if you if you treat the world um, if you've got a hammer in your hand you'll see everything as nails yes yes but yes, the truth yes. is that we are much more um that that it's our level of thinking our system systemicness our ability to holistically see the layers you know you speak about design that's why it's 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 layered it's multi, it's it's three three dimensional four dimensional it's like creating a beautiful sculpture. Um, And so when you understand that things are this complex, you realize that there's no three steps to an epiphany. Yeah. That there are specific ways to get closer to the goal. But you have to understand the pitfalls, (laughs) Mm -hmm. the realities, the limitations, the psychology of the environment and the intention that you have. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I think about all of the variables that have been probably inspired both of us, you know, some of which we may not even know, but I am quite clear that if I think about both the limits of motivation, you know, studying neuroscience and realizing just how much it's, how much we're being primed without realizing it. And if we don't do the priming, if we don't do design props and so forth, I began, I, I got, I became really excited. You know, I've had a couple of chapters of my career where I realized I was doing a lot of good work, but I wasn't as 
amped or confident in the work as I am now. You know, when you think about the work you're doing at G Work, the first thing I want you to do, I want you to do two things for me. Tell us a little bit about G Work and how you feel about the work that you're doing in organizations and how it makes you feel. Sure. So my my path evolved out of the nonprofit space. Yes, yes. And I started to work with uh, global organizations like Google, Nestle, Johnson & Johnson, and that successful organizations define success in behaviors. The real challenge is executing on that. So mm. even if you've gone through a phenomenal process where everybody got involved in co-creating values or bringing your values to life, you still struggle day to day. Yes. Performance, engagement, um, learning, never shall they meet to actually execute on the business strategy. So we're working um, at the moment with a, a German company and they are in the um, in the digital space and their strategy is changing significantly. And the change in strategy is requiring culture to shift. I cannot say more than that because I think it would be too revealing. Uh, but that is a business strategy where it enables the business strategy. Now, the question is, how the heck do you actually enable this on the ground? And so that's why I founded G-Work. G-Work is an employee habit-building app that enables business strategy through daily habits around culture. I mean, you and I, when we first reconnected, part of the reason why I got so excited was not just the soft energy that you brought to this conversation, the intellectual grasp you had over this conversation, but the fact that you had developed this technology and you, you know, I, part of, part of, you know, I want you to talk a little bit because I want, I want the listener to understand just how much work it went into you developing this technology and how you went through various iterations and so forth, because it's really important that, you know, we're going to do work together. We're going to partner together. But what's really important is that people know we're not just taking chances with this stuff. This is serious. <laughs> a lot of work and a lot of you know, time has been spent on this. Tell us a little bit about your journey in developing the technology. Sure. So it was hard. <laughs> yes, exactly. It was difficult. Um, there was a lot of things to take into consideration and find a universal model. And so the approach that we took is we went and we researched the top behaviors of successful organizations around the world. We looked at research papers, Harvard Business Review, did literature reviews, and also used our network or my network of, of leaders around the world. And we mapped 180 behaviors. And we linked those behaviors into seven, what we call growth focus areas, teamwork and collaboration, ownership and accountability, innovation, growth mindset, customer centricity, mental health and well-being. We mapped a universal, universal behaviors blueprint that any organization can utilize and adapt to their strategy. 
then the real work began to actually make it something that can then translate into daily habits. And so the, the pieces of the puzzle that we put together is that once the organization chooses their growth focus areas and the behaviors, what we call the observable behaviors that matter most to the organization, a 360 is launched through the app. Self, peer, manager to create that understanding of what it means around how I show up, what yes. ways of work mean. And then based on that, we developed 13 algorithms that then allocate three behavior goals to each individual. And then we went and we built thousands of tiny, tiny, teeny habits <laughs> that the individual gets allocated. I mean, the individual doesn't get a thousand. They get about four. <laughs> Choose from, uh, based on the technology. Give, and give then me a couple of the, that the into tiny, diary. Sorry, just quickly. Give me a couple yeah. of the tiny habits so people are familiar with the, the you know some of the habits. So it's really about, you know, we have an issue like ownership and accountability in our organization. And so one of the behaviors might be consistently completing individual tasks and meeting deadlines. Good. Well, what are the habits that allow people to learn to do that? So what do we know? We know that people who reflect on their to-do list and prioritize and choose one thing to focus on for the day become better at meeting deliverables and being more productive. And so in organizations, it becomes really difficult because the manager is scratching their head in a one-on-one in -on -one feedback session. And they're trying to say, you know, you need to be more innovative or you just need to speak out more. And that's mm -hmm. what I call not constructive criticism. <laughs> constructive feedback is not just positive, negative, positive, what we call the feedback sandwich. It's about what can I do to change and how? This is the big challenge. And so how do we go about doing that? And how do we enable that in people on a day-to-day -day level to actually move from knowing to doing? Got it. You know, if we go, let's look at the problem, right? The problem is historically... You bring in a consultant, a motivational speaker, and you say, we would like for you to consider these behavioral changes. And then they inspire you on why you need to make those changes. And then they may even give you a few ideas about how to go about them. And this is where we come in. We offer you tools and um, a little motivation, you know, to consider <laughs> engaging these tools. But I want, I want, the listener to be super clear about the process. You meet with the client, the client agrees that this is a beautiful technology and what are your steps um, to implementation? Sure, absolutely. So we would work with leadership to define what those growth focus areas are. And uh, we have a very simple wizard that allows you to select these. And then the platform does the rest for you. It rolls out the 360 throughout your organization, reminds people to complete their 360s, gives you uh, data dashboards around what people have completed, et cetera. And then 
through the algorithms, the individual receives those three behavior goals. And the individual then chooses one habit that they then schedule directly into their calendar using our technology. And we create all sorts of feedback loops around scheduling, practicing, and then adoption. This creates a massive amount of data for the organization. So, you know, we've got customer data, we've got operational data, but the only people data we have is the transactional stuff. Yes, yes, yes. And AI is trying to go, well, leave. What does it mean about engagement? Yes, those things are important. But how much do we know about how people show up in how they collaborate, how they support one another, um, how good they are at growing themselves? Guys, I want you to be super clear. Your issues with attrition, your issue with a lot of change, a lot of disruption, a lot of chaos often becomes, often occurs because of you can't measure, you don't know what's happening with the behaviors. You there's just there's a lot of lot of issues. If you were to identify what you think this product can do for organizations, how much money it could save them, how, how much <laughs> how fewer headaches they may have, what would you say is like the bottom line benefit of this product? Sure. So we worked with one organization and we improved proactive feed, feedback across the organization by 30%. And the wow. impact of that for the business is that they were actually able to grow without hiring more people. Wow. So they managed to achieve the same outputs with less individuals because of proactive feedback. Mm. Now, think about that. And Imagine what that means to the bottom line. So we're talking about improved productivity. We're talking about enhanced engagement, job satisfaction, professional development, reduced stress. But if you're thinking about it as a business leader, think about how much time is wasted in the workplace because people don't know how to be with each other effectively. They don't know how to have meetings effectively. They don't know how to um, share ideas effectively. And so when you start to look at those elements, start to measure them and actually improve them over time, the the ROI is clear. Mm -hmm. Well, I just want to thank you for the hard work, the sacrifice you've put into this platform. Thank you for the being open to collaborate and have these conversations and work together. I think at the end of the day, you know, these type of collaborations and engagements enrich everyone involved, right? It's like, you know, there are gaps that I have, there are gaps that you may have, there are there are people out there yearning to be better, to reach their goals without, without all the actual drama. So I just want to celebrate you and I want to celebrate you and your team and your family, because I know they your family has had to sacrifice, everybody's had to sacrifice, but I'm really, really thrilled. Is there any final closing Comment. What do you want to say to a, a leader who's questioning whether or not they should have a meeting with us? Absolutely. So first of all, Timothy, I want to say I'm super excited to partner with you. I think it's going to be an exciting adventure. And I know that we will uh, be talking to the right people in the right ways, um, the early adopters and the ones who really want to transform their organizations. I think the big question is, think about what you measure today and what 
the organization still needs to measure and has no capacity to measure. And think about the amount of work that goes into performance reviews, into trying to develop people um, and the resources that that costs and how somehow performance, engagement, learning, business transformation don't seem to be a single golden thread. And the impact and the cost that that has on the organization. So this is what we're able to help with, really help you as an organization be improved performance through simple daily habits that stick. Aaron Cohen, thank you so much for joining us on the Brain and Brand Show. Great to be here. Thank you, Timothy.